Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor here, and it's great to have you with us. It's great to have those of you with us who are joining us at home or are joining us in the overflow as well this morning. Uh, as I stand here today, my heart is full. My wife and I had an opportunity to travel down on Thursday to see our kids in Chicago and spend Thursday evening, Friday, and then come back yesterday. And so I've got a, a dad heart that is full today. My heart is also full because it is so good to just look out and see all of you praising the Lord this morning and celebrating his goodness. And my heart is full because today is the first day of what is often called Holy Week. Uh, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. Right, what is Palm Sunday? It is the day that for the last 2,000 years the church has used in order to celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem one week before he rose from the dead. It's a story, Jesus' triumphal entry is a story that some of you have heard at least a hundred times in your life. And there may be others in this room where today will be the first time that you ever hear this account of Jesus' triumphal entry. And we're going to spend some time today looking at what happened during that triumphal entry and material from all four of the Gospels, and especially going to be focused in on who was there in the crowd that day? Because that is important for us and for our understanding. John chapter 12 says that the triumphal entry happened immediately after Jesus rose, raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, where did that event with the resurrection of Lazarus take place? It took place in a little town called Bethany which is just two miles to the east of Jerusalem. So this is essentially a suburb of Jerusalem. Lazarus is raised from the dead after being in the grave for four days. And when he gets up, what does he start to do? He starts to tell everybody about the fact that Jesus raised him from the dead. Not only that, there were dozens upon dozens, hundreds of witnesses that saw Lazarus raised from the dead, and they began to travel around to Bethany and Bethpage and then into Jerusalem to tell everybody about the resurrection from the dead that Jesus performed upon Lazarus. Word begins to spread, and people are amazed. The Jewish leader's reaction is a desire to kill Jesus. Because they see the following that is coming out after him. Because they see the power and authority with which he operates. They don't just want to kill Jesus. Who else do they want to kill? They want to kill Lazarus because he's telling everybody about what Jesus did. But most people, they just want to get a glimpse of Jesus. They just want to see what Jesus is going to do next. And we see them gather in order to try and find him. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the day after Lazarus is raised from the dead, a huge crowd gathers because they hear Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. How big a crowd was it? A few years after this, the Jewish historian Josephus said that 2.7 million people descended upon Jerusalem for this Passover feast. 2.7 million people. Even if Josephus is exaggerating a little bit, there were still hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in a small geographic area. 
There is crowding like maybe none of us have experienced going on in this setting. People's tents are right next to other people's tents as they are camping out in between Jerusalem and these small towns to celebrate the Passover. Word begins to spread. Not just about what Jesus did raising Lazarus from the dead, but word begins to spread that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And hundreds upon hundreds, thousands upon thousands begin to go out and see if they can catch a glimpse of him. I I grew up in an era of really low-budget Christian movies. And in those really, really low-budget Christian movies, Jesus would enter into Jerusalem and there'd always be like 120 people there to welcome them. Because that was the maximum number they could get from three churches' drama department to go out and be a part of this movie. But it was not 120 people. There were thousands upon thousands that are crowding around, 10 deep, 20 deep, 30 deep. Dads have kids on their shoulders to try and catch a glimpse of Jesus. And when they see him, what do they see? They get this glimpse of Jesus riding towards Jerusalem upon a donkey colt. Just imagine what that looked like for a minute. Jesus riding towards Jerusalem, feet hanging down, almost touching the ground as he rides this young donkey colt towards Jerusalem. A bit of an awkward scene, isn't it? But it is exactly the scene that Jesus wanted. Mark chapter 11 says, Jesus very clearly chose this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Jesus wants to make sure his disciples communicate, we're just borrowing this. I'm not not stealing your donkey. We will return it. How in the world does Jesus know that there is a donkey colt in this town that he hasn't yet entered and exactly where it's going to be? I think the answer to that is pretty simple. It's because Jesus is God in the flesh. What did he do the day before this? He raised a man from the dead. And it isn't the first person that he raised from the dead. And so it is no big deal for him as God in the flesh to look into a village that he has not yet entered and know exactly where that donkey colt is going to be so that they can go and get it for him and he can ride it into Jerusalem. Why, why does Jesus so intentionally choose a donkey colt in order to ride to Jerusalem? Because it communicated his purpose for going there. That donkey communicates Jesus' purpose for going there. When a king rode towards a city upon a donkey, it was a sign that he was coming to that city in order to make peace. When a king rode towards a city in order to make war, or in order to declare his victory in war, what did he ride? A horse, right? He rode a war horse into that situation. A great stallion. And it is worth us remembering at this point Jesus is coming back again, isn't he? And what is he going to be riding upon when he comes back again? That great war horse, isn't he? Revelation chapter 19 describes this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will return and he will be riding upon that war horse because he has come to vanquish his enemies. But in this first time that he comes, he rides toward Jerusalem on a donkey because he went into that city in order to make peace. Peace with whom? Peace between God and you. Jesus entered into Jerusalem in order to make peace Peace between God and men and women. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 talks about this. For if while we were, what? Enemies. What were we in our sins and selfishness before Jesus' work in our life? We were enemies of God. On the great battlefield of life, we stood across the valley from him in opposition to him, disobedient and living in selfishness. But Jesus went to Jerusalem to die for our sins, to be raised to new life so that we might transition from enemies of God to a part of God's family. He rode in upon this donkey to announce his intention to make peace, peace between God and men, as he reconciled us to God in himself. Jesus doing this, riding towards Jerusalem on a donkey, had been prophesied 500 years before he did it. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. How did Zechariah know 500 years before this happened with Jesus that this was going to happen? Because this is the word of God, isn't it? And what God plans, he has revealed. And God reveals these things ahead of time so that we will see it and say, look at what God has done. Look at his amazing work planned within history. As Jesus rode this donkey towards Jerusalem... There were three groups of people in that crowd that came out to greet him. And it's those three groups that came out to greet Jesus that I want us to focus on this morning because those three groups still exist today all around us. The first group of people that came out to see Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem were what I have called the rejectors. Those who rejected Jesus, rejected his followers, and rejected the message of God. Both the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke mentioned the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as people who rejected Jesus. They wanted him dead and they wanted his followers silenced. They told Jesus as he was riding in and people were praising him, hey, tell your followers to stop that. And Jesus said to them, 
If they're silent, the very rocks will cry out in praise. John chapter 12, verse 19 shows the depth of the problem that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had in this situation on their hands with Jesus. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. What what are we going to do? He's growing in popularity. People recognize his power. They rejected Jesus. They rejected his message. They rejected those who follow him. There are people all around us in the world who reject Jesus, reject his message, and reject his followers. Have you ever seen someone like that? They're all over the media, social media. We know them in our lives. What is God's call for us, his followers, towards those who are rejectors? What does he call us to do? For, with those who reject Christ, reject us, reject the message, what does God call us to do in that situation? He calls us as his followers to gossip about them. No, that may not be right. To post nasty stuff about them on social media, isn't that right? No, maybe that's not right either. What does Jesus call us to? He calls us to pray for them, doesn't he? Love your enemies and... Pray for those who persecute you. And that is job one with those who reject Jesus, reject us, reject the message. We are to be a people who are above all else praying for them. It's distinctly possible that every person in this room has someone in their life that they're close to who rejects Jesus and rejects the gospel. Do you have someone in your life like that that you're close to, a family member? a friend, somebody you work with every day? What do we do in those situations where there is someone that we are close to, who we love, who rejects Jesus and rejects the message of God? What do we do in that situation? I believe we continue to plead with God on our knees that the God of miracles would open their blind eyes and soften their hearts so that they would be drawn to him. Isn't that what we do? We continue to pray that God would be at work in the life of those who currently reject him so that their hearts would be turned and they come to faith in him. And we remember how many times God has done that in the past. In the lives of people like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis' mom died of cancer when he was 10 years old. And it hardened his heart to God and the gospel. He lived his young life as an atheist, proclaiming in college that Christianity was one mythology, one mythology among many that is to be rejected. But then, hired as a professor at Oxford University, he became friends with a couple of Christian professors who prayed for him regularly, who prayed that he would be saved, who met with him to talk about the gospel And in September of 1931, actually September 19th of 1931, he found himself at dinner with two of those professors. Hugo Dyson and J.R.R. Tolkien met with Lewis for dinner and began a conversation at dinner on September 19th that lasted well into the morning of September 20th. Lewis says he left that conversation and went back to his room and tried to work. But God kept interrupting his work. 
He kept pursuing him. He kept trying to imprint on Lewis's heart. Lewis kept trying to fight it. And he describes this battle that he was having with the Lord when he says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. I, I, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In 1931, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. How great is the love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, and resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. How great is the love indeed. And God turned this hard-hearted atheist into one of his followers and then used his writings to impact the lives of tens of thousands of people because the Lord's arm is not too short to save. Do you have someone in your life that rejects Jesus, rejects the gospel? Stay on your knees pleading with the Lord again and again. His arm is not too short to save, even the rejecters. And that was some of whom was there, some of the people that were there in that crowd that day. Another group that were there as a part of that crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem that day are what I've called the users. They were there to follow Jesus and proclaim Jesus to be king and say, Jesus, we're going to follow you as long as you'll lead us exactly where we want to go. Jesus, we are all on board, Team Jesus, as long as you'll use your power to fulfill our dreams and our desires, which were to remove Roman occupation from Jerusalem. And this group of people that I've called users, as soon as they found out that Jesus wasn't willing to use his power in order to fulfill their dreams and their desires, abandoned him altogether. Once they found out over the course of that week that he wasn't going to be the kind of savior that used his power to drive out Rome, but was it a completely different kind of savior, they abandoned him. Where, where were they? As people chanted, crucify him, crucify him, some of them joined in. Where were they? As they put him on the cross, they had abandoned him. In Acts chapter 1, we see that at the church's beginning, there were 120 people present. Where did these tens of thousands of people go? There were all kinds of people there that day that wanted to use Jesus for their own purposes, to fulfill their dreams, their desires, and to better their own current circumstances. We can see that desire for them to use Jesus in order to drive out the Roman authorities and to elevate their circumstances and their place in the symbols that are talked about in this passage. John 12, 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What, what are the palm branches about? The palm branches were a symbol that the Jews had been using for decades, a, a symbol of rebellion against those who occupied them. In 168 BC, there was a terrible Greek king who came in and occupied Jerusalem named Antiochus IV. He desecrated the temple. He built an altar to Zeus there and sacrificed unclean pigs in the Holy of Holies. Can you imagine that? 
but a group of Jews rose up in Jerusalem, led by the Maccabean family, and they drove the troops of Antiochus IV out of Jerusalem. And when they did, they cleansed and rededicated the temple, and people brought palm branches as a celebration to that cleansing of the temple as a symbol that the occupiers had been driven out. Then in 141 BC, Simon the Maccabee drove Syrian occupiers out of the city. And when he returned to the city, having driven them out, people lined the roads on the way into Jerusalem and shouted and sang songs and waved palm branches as a symbol that they'd driven the occupiers out of Jerusalem. In 66 AD, when the Israelites finally rose up and rebelled against Rome and tried to drive them out of their land, they printed coins that had palm branches on them because they were a symbol of the desire of the people of Israel to drive those occupiers out of their land. And the people bring palm branches because they see the might and power of King Jesus and say, use that might and power in order to accomplish our purposes and drive these occupiers out of our land. You can see that even in what they're shouting. They shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? It means save now or save please. As they are shouting this, it is very unlikely that many of them meant, please come and save us from our sins. No, they are shouting for King Jesus to save them from occupation from Rome. Save now, save now, Jesus. They have seen amazing power from this man. He has given sight to the blind. He's healed the lame. He's changed water into wine. He has calmed the storms, driven out demons. He has now raised the dead on more than one occasion. And they say, Jesus, with you by our side, we can overcome Rome. Please fulfill our dreams and our desires. Maybe, Jesus, you can rain down lightning on our enemies. Maybe you can shoot laser beams from your eyes and take care of them. Probably not. That probably wasn't what they were thinking. They probably read less comic books than we have. But they absolutely believed that when the Messiah came, based on Deuteronomy 18, he would be a second Moses who would have the ability to bring the plagues of Egypt upon their enemies and drive them out of Jerusalem. And so they cry out for Jesus to accomplish their desires and their dreams. They are users of Jesus. And when he won't fulfill their dreams and desires, they abandon him. There are all kinds of users within the church today. Those who want to use Jesus in order to pray prayers and have Jesus accomplish their dreams and their desires through his power. Those who want to use Jesus to pray a prayer and get into heaven, but never actually live their life for him. Those who want to use Jesus to provide good family values, but don't actually commit their lives and submit them to him. Users have dreams and they approach Jesus and they say, Jesus, get our dreams done. Instead of approaching Jesus and saying, Jesus, Give me all of your dreams and your desires. Jesus says, users are not my followers. Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then the very next verse says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever is dedicated to their own dreams and desires, they're going to lose that. But whoever loses his life for me, takes on my dreams, my desires, my commands, 
they will save it. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says there are a lot of people who will have been users, who will have cried out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, in order to try and get their way in life. And those will be people who do not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who enter into the kingdom of heaven are not those trying to use Jesus' power to accomplish their own goals and desires. Those who enter into the kingdom of heaven are those who are disciples of Jesus, who've submitted themselves fully to his lordship and seek to obey all that he has commanded. They're not users, they're what? They're followers, and that's the third group that was there that day. C.S. Lewis describes the life of a follower when he says, from God's perspective, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I'm not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out, handed over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. There were among the crowds that were welcoming Jesus during that triumphal entry, those who were his genuine followers who had given themselves fully over to him. They weren't his followers because they were the smartest people in that group. They weren't his followers because they were the most righteous people before they met him. As a matter of fact, it was a messy group of people who were his followers. It was people like Mary Magdalene who'd been possessed by seven demons before she met Jesus. But then once she met him, she was a follower and submitted her life to him. It was people like Peter who, after this triumphal entry, would deny Jesus even knowing him at the most crucial time and yet would experience Jesus' restoration and live his entire life for Jesus, even willing to die for the sake of spreading the message of Jesus. It wasn't a group of perfect people. It was a group of people whose lives were a battle a group of people whose lives were up and down and up and down, but they were followers. They clung to Jesus and submitted their lives to him. A couple of weeks ago, I heard the testimony of one of our friends here at Friendship, a man named Jeff Krasinski. And as I was listening to Jeff's story, I thought, man, he, he would have been there as one of Jesus' followers fully committed to submitting his life to him. His life's been filled with all kinds of ups and downs, as you're about to hear. There are constant battles that he is still fighting, but he's clinging to Jesus every step of the way. L listen to Jeff's testimony. For me, it's... Um it's relaxing, first of all, and then secondly, I, I look at the stuff that I do afterwards, and I'm like, I, I didn't do that. A verse that I find comforting is Romans 8, 38, 39, which says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor any other powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
And I am fully convinced that there is nothing that will take me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Around 2012, I was a pastor at a small church in the Twin City area, and I developed depression at that time because of some of the issues that were going on at the church that I um, had to be a part of. And so I went in to get diagnosed, and I was misdiagnosed at that point and started on some pretty strong medications. Uh, I was on 19 different medications before they were able to stabilize me. And even when I was stabilized, I wasn't really. I was turned into something other than, uh, than I was. My friends came to me and says, you're not the same Jeff that you used to be. We don't even recognize you anymore. And it almost got where I was in a catatonic state because I was so drugged up with these strong medications that weren't doing anything to help with depression or anxiety, but causing more depression and anxiety. And so after years of, of going back and forth with those different medications and finding myself um, having to stop working, having to stop taking care of my kids full time, have to stop my doctoral program, have to stop my position on the board at the credit union, had to stop my position at the university. Um, I found myself just in a state where I was just surviving and barely at that point. I tried to do simple tasks uh, like get up, take a shower, even getting out of bed in the morning was difficult when you have depression. Having that anxiety framing your day and not knowing what thing was going to come out or what paranoia was going to take over at that day. Your brain would just rotate and circle through things. It was difficult to even have a conversation with a friend because the mind is going. What are they thinking about me? What are they saying behind my back? What kind of things are going on? What lies are, are, are taking place? And so it's hard to even trust anybody at that point. The one solid thing that I found during my mental health issues was that God was always there with me. I don't think there was an individual time where I had lost faith in God where I had lost confidence in him. The, the difficulty of trying to read scripture or to pray or to have a conversation with God um, didn't go much beyond just help, daddy, I need you. I couldn't find any confidence in my thoughts. I couldn't even find confidence in the people around me at that time because the mind was twisting and distorting the figures and facts. Life is not the same that it used to be. There are parts of my life that are, that are missing still. I still have issues with reading comprehension or some basic cognition skills or communication skills. I still get sad. Those emotions are still true. The one thing that I found though is I'm not depressed anymore. The great part about God is that he is a redeemer. He can take a mess and make it into a message. He can take a test in life and turn it into a testimony. I have a story now and it's not my story, it's his story. And I'm able to share that with other individuals and comfort them in their times of need. Because I've been there, I've been able to comfort those that need comforting with the way that I was comforted. 
If there's one thing that I can tell you, it's to keep holding to your faith because God is holding on to you still. He's got you in his grip. He's not gonna let you go. The events that are taking place in your life right now, he knew about billions of years ago. The Psalm says that he wrote them in his book before one of them came to be. And I can find confidence in that, knowing that God is in control of all situations. And if he's the God of my past, then he's also the God of my future and I can trust him with my future as well. I've talked to Jeff a couple of times in the last week and what is clear is that he is a follower of Jesus. That doesn't mean that when he became a follower of Jesus, there was just this immediate and steady ascent to absolute intimacy with Jesus without trouble, without challenge. His life is filled with ups and downs. There are battles going on today, but he battles them hand in hand with his Lord, fully committed to him, following him in each and everything. And as such, if you know Jeff, you know he walks around and talks about what Jesus has done in his life. Because when Jesus saves us, and we become his follower, it's our delight to tell people about the greatness of our Savior. That, that's what they were doing that day. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. As followers of Jesus, we recognize he is so glorious, so exalted, that if we're silent... The creation itself will cry out about how great he is, but God's plan is not for the rocks to cry out with his goodness, but for his followers to cry out about his goodness. He has called us to that and given us that great privilege. Jeff is doing that with his life, sharing about what Jesus has done. The Wilgens are doing that in Namibia, sharing with others about the greatness of Jesus Christ everywhere they go. And God's call is for all of us to be doing that this week. In whatever setting we're a part of, we simply talk about the greatness of Jesus and what he has done in our lives. I'd like to spend a moment just praying for God to be at work in us over the course of this week. What a unique opportunity we have on Easter week to share about what Jesus has done in our lives as people's interest is piqued this week in particular. And so let's pray together for God to be at work through us this week. Father, we come here today as your gathered people, recognizing that over the course of this week, we are going to be scattered among this community, your lights and your witnesses. We pray that your Holy Spirit would go before us, softening people's hearts, prompting questions in people's minds. Lord God, we ask that you'd be using our words as we talk about the work that you've done in us to impact the lives of others and draw them into relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take our offering at this time. The ushers will be making their way around with the red buckets. And you can put your Connect cards into those red buckets. 
or if you have offering and you'd like to put that in those red buckets, you can do that as well. And I would invite you to stand with me as we do that, and we are going to praise our God together.